Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jacob Perez. He's an investment-focused mortgage broker from Ontario. We talked about a variety of subjects from house hacking, selecting the right market to invest in, first strategies, zero impact properties, portfolio analysis, and investing in short-term rentals in Florida. There was definitely a lot of great information shared during this show, and I think you'll enjoy it. Hey, Jacob, I want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How's it going today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. So happy that you're on the show. I'm excited that you're here. Heard some of your other stuff, and I heard you speak at the multifamily conference. Loved what you talked about. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to jump into the show. So maybe if we could just start off, you can tell our listeners about yourself, where you're at, and what's keeping you busy these days. Cool. So, you know, like everyone, a lot of layers to kind of who I am and things like that. But I guess from the professional lens, I'm a mortgage agent. I've been a mortgage agent for about five years, and I specialize working with real estate investors, helping people scale from one to 10 properties on the residential side, and then teaching you how to level up and get into bigger acquisitions, apartment buildings, things of that nature. And prior to being a mortgage agent, I actually started investing in real estate at 23 years old. So I've been investing in real estate for about 10 years. I've bought about maybe 21, 22 properties at this point, everything from single family duplexes, fourplexes to bigger apartment buildings and dabbling in a little bit of land development in the US as well. So a lot of different experiences, real estate investing. I love trying out different strategies and just kind of the fun of learning new things. And yeah, that's kind of like my professional background. That's awesome. And I know you went to university, right? So maybe can you kind of maybe just share a little bit about that? Like, so you're in university, that part of your story, and also what kind of got you buying at 23 years old? Yeah. So I was like most people, I took a degree in business and, you know, right away out of school, I got a job at, you know, large company and I was getting, you know, minimal pay and things of that nature. So I was really trying to move the needle whatever way I could. And I stumbled upon the idea of real estate investing. And my number one goal was I want to get cash flow. I want a property that had a really strong cash flow. Now I was 22 years old and I was walking through triplexes and fiveplexes and you know these kind of mid-sized properties in central Hamilton. This is like probably 2011 or 2012 at the time. And they were really rough. Like I was from the suburbs. I had never seen how some of these tenants live. I didn't even know these living like conditions existed. And I really just got scared. So I actually ended up pivoting, buying a brand new condo that was negative cash flow and then shortly after about maybe eight months later i still had about you know ten thousand dollars in my bank account and i bought another house with five percent down and i actually took on my first renovation so that was kind of like trial by fire with real estate i didn't really have any mentors you know i was really green when i started i'll tell you how green i was had I heard of a mortgage agent at the time? Of course not, but I think that's pretty normal. But I didn't even know that you could work with a real estate agent on the buy side. I thought you just called realtors and showed up to the house to see them. So I was literally dealing with the listing agent on every single deal, but I didn't even know there was the option of having a buying agent schedule showing through you and things like that. So I bought two properties without even knowing what a buying agent was, essentially. That's hilarious, man. And actually, that reminds me, years ago, me and my ex had looked at a fourplex and we toured it and we got cold feet. I wish we would have bought it back then, but we went in, same thing. The kitchen was just so bad in one of the units. Someone was passed out on a couch, didn't wake up during the showing. And we're just like, we just got 
prayed and we just kind of never went down that road at that time. So it's unfortunate, as you know, investing, you can always get new tenants and get a better tenant profile, all that stuff, right? So then what did you take in university? You didn't say what you took. Yeah, so I did a business degree. I started working, picked up a couple properties, and I actually eventually went back to school. I did a master's in data and analytics. So that was really, really good for training your brain, how to sequence things, how to kind of get to the most efficient path on whether you're creating a process at work or looking at an investment deal or things like that. So I did a master's in data and you know, all my friends were doing consulting jobs and things like that. And I was seeing how many hours they were working. And it was just kind of something that didn't look like it aligned enough with my passion for real estate investing. And that was when I decided just to kind of completely abandon my career path and become a mortgage agent. That's cool, man. And then, so what ended up spurring that on? Like, I guess, what gave you that epiphany moment where you're like, hey, I'm going to be a mortgage agent now? Yeah, so it was really, there was one clear epiphany that drove the whole decision. You know, being a mortgage agent or being a realtor was always a backup plan in my mind, but my ego viewed those job titles as not prestigious, right? And the reason I kind of abandoned my career was I got an interview for a really high paying job. The base salary was about 200,000 plus there was a commission incentive. And I was not experienced enough for this job, but I got an interview. And at every round of the interview process, pretty sure I just kept winning the interview process. So it got to the point where I did eight interviews for this job, and then I didn't get the position because they just said, look, you don't have enough experience for us to invest kind of salary in you. And that was when I was like, I'm begging someone to let me work for them. This is crazy. Eight interviews, this is a one month process of your life just to find out you don't get a job. And that was kind of when I was done with working with corporate. Yeah, I totally get that, man. So what did you end up doing with the negative cash flow condo? Did you end up selling it? Did you end up keeping it for like- I, flipped it, I flipped it three years later. I made a hundred thousand and I allocated the funds into more real estate. Wow, man, that's pretty sweet. And then just one more on the backstory, the renovation, how did that go? Was it pretty extensive or was it kind of just a small kind of lipstick flip? It was the power of real estate. So, I mean, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do a renovation. Of course, I did not know any contractors. I didn't know anything. And I was literally looking up contractors on Kijiji and bringing people through the house before closing, trying to get quotes and things like that. And there was somebody in my office at the time who said, oh, have you heard of Purchase Plus Improvements Mortgage? And then all of a sudden, I found out that you can actually fund your renovation into your mortgage. So I went back to my mortgage agent, asked him to change up my whole approval to structure it so that I can get a renovation loan with my property. And then eventually I got referred to a good contractor and we just did kind of like a cosmetic repair to the house, essentially like flooring, paint, like just basic stuff. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And then listen to some of your other stuff. And uh, I really like how you kind of help guide new investors to scale. So maybe we could talk about that. So let's say you had a new investor coming your way. And you help them. There's some strategy also in just even picking markets where it's even scalable, right? Absolutely. So what we do with every single client is we take them through the same customer journey. It's really a clear three-step process. Starts with the first phase, which we call portfolio analysis. That's when we look at every single piece of debt that you have currently. It could be mortgages, could be student loans, could be credit cards, things like that. And we look at, okay, is there any way where we can restructure these loans? Maybe we can take a few of your mortgages and extend the amortizations to lower the payments. Maybe we can call up 
your student loan provider and see if you can restructure the terms to have a lower payment. But essentially what we do is we say, you're approved for let's say $500,000 as is, but if we make all these adjustments, your approval is gonna jump up to seven or 800,000. So our first thing that we do before putting people in a position to even make an offer is we assess how much can we possibly stretch their qualification if we look at every single avenue possible in order to do so. Now, not everyone's going to want to do all those things that's required in order to improve their qualification, but at least we give people the option of what it looks like. The next step is we teach people to use the BRRRR strategy. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the BRRRR strategy, but you might have some who are a little bit newer to it. So that stands for buy, renovate, rent, refinance. So we teach people to approach properties that you can purchase at a substantial renovation that increases the value of the property. And then you're able to refinance and recoup all your funds back so that you now have down payment again to keep buying properties. But the final piece, the third phase after teaching them the correct investment strategy is guiding them towards the correct markets. So we try to teach our clients to focus on what are called zero impact properties. So it's properties that have a large enough cash flow margin where they no longer impact your buying power. So if your maximum qualification is 700,000, if you purchase a zero impact property at a purchase price of 700,000, you can buy another at 700 and another and another and another because it doesn't negatively impact your borrowing power. So a lot of us think about cash flow in the terms of how we personally calculate it. We show you cash flow on how the banks underwrite it. And that way you know exactly how to find a property where it does not create a liability within your mortgage application. You would still have to grow your down payment, right? Your capital in order for you to go, because you're going you're going to value. Obviously, you can't pull all money from that property, right? Well, you can if it's a good enough deal, right? So if you're targeting a property where you can recoup all your funds back, the formula is really simple. So if your purchase price plus your renovation cost, the total of that number is 80% or less of the after repair value of the property, then you can recoup all your down payment and all your renovation costs. But it's easier said than done. The theory sounds great. Actually finding these properties, that's the challenge and that's the competition that we're all involved in as investors. Yeah, for sure. And so it's obviously if you're in the GTA, I mean, good luck, right? It's going to, what's the cash flow that you would need as well? Versus like with the rent versus your rent like numbers. Yeah. So every bank's going to calculate this a little bit differently. I just like giving people the easiest one to run with because it works at most banks. And it's if your monthly rental income is double your monthly mortgage payment. So you don't need to factor taxes, utilities, any of these other things. Just simply, if your monthly rental income is double that of your monthly mortgage payment, then that property effectively will not impact your mortgage income. Yeah, that's a great number to know or ratio to know. So with the interest rates climbing, this is obviously getting more challenging, right? So prior to this huge surge in interest rates in Canada, there were so many secondary markets where this strategy worked really well. And, you know, there's going to be some few and far between where this still works. But this is one of the big reasons that people are moving into the commercial realm, because when you buy a 20 unit apartment building or 10 unit apartment building, that doesn't negatively affect your ability to buy another apartment building. So the apartment building investing, this is why it's gaining so much popularity because the scalability is there where it's maybe a bigger challenge to scale on the residential lending side. Yeah, that makes sense. So then let's say you're close. You don't quite have the double the rent versus mortgage. Maybe you're at 75%. And so how much of a headwind is that going to be over time? Because that's where you've got to save up the capital to do it again. Is that what happens in that situation? Well, the zero impact doesn't really impact how much capital you retrieve. 
that's going to be strictly tied to the value of the property and your qualification. But if you're not at zero impact, so if your property doesn't meet that cash flow metric, then all it means is that it will impact your buying power. So maybe instead of qualifying for 700,000 again on your second property, you now qualify for 650 or 625, depending on how big or large that deficit is. So it's okay if you don't reach that metric perfectly, but if you're close to it, the closer you are, the better, essentially. And with the bigger down payment, you're obviously going to uh, be closer to those numbers as well. I know investors want to put minimal down payment down, but that's sometimes what you have to do right now in this market in order to make the numbers work. Sure. Right. Like, you know, you can always increase your down payment, reduce the mortgage size. You know, a lot of people are looking at alternative strategies like, hey, you know, maybe I'm going to do midterm rental instead of long term, get slightly higher rent on my units. Maybe I'm going to do Airbnb on my units. So there's always a way to optimize the property a bit further. Right. It just really goes to what's your skill set? What's the time allocation you have available and just being realistic with your circumstances? Yeah, for sure. And if you're a new investor and you're not living in one of those great markets, maybe you're three, four hours away. How are they handling to look for those uh, zero impact properties in a different market? Well, you know what? Nowadays with technology, things have gotten so much easier. So if you are looking at a market, let's say a market like Windsor, Ontario, Sudbury, Ontario, some of these like traditionally less expensive markets in Ontario, or let's you know even say like Edmonton, Ontario and Alberta, right? Like you could find an investor focused real estate agent who knows that when there's a good listing coming up, I don't even need to be asked about the listing. I'm going there, recording a video and putting together a full package and sending in a list to all my out of town investors right? So if you're looking to invest remote, it's not that challenging. It really just comes down to building a team you can trust. That's going to look like a real estate agent. You want a mortgage agent. They probably are the one that doesn't have to be local. The property management company is going to be huge because if you're three hours away, you just don't want to be managing it. Now, property management, you may not need it, but it's something that you should always budget into your cash flow formula because even though you may self-manage the property today, at some point of your scale, you will no longer be managing those properties. So once you get to 30 units, you're going to have some kind of breaking point somewhere. So you always want to build in a property management cost, even if you're not using a property management company, because you know, you'll likely be using one of those services at some point. Yeah, for sure. That's great. And I actually, with the video thing, I do that quite often for my clients that are out of town. All my videos on a drive. So basically I'll do like intro, you know, here's the property from the outside and then walk around. I start pointing everything out during the video. And then I just send it all in the drive because it's usually a pretty big file, especially if they're timing. Because it can be very difficult to get people on the phone, you know, midday, morning, that kind of thing is the only opportunity to see the property, right? No. And, and even if you're local, some people just like that better. I don't have to leave my house. Be at the office. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I don't want that property. I'm glad I didn't waste a trip. I'm glad I didn't waste the realtor's time too, right? How many people are searching for houses for seven months, eight months, a year with a real estate agent? As a buyer, it gets to the point where you start to feel bad for the real estate. You feel guilty taking the real estate agent out for more showings, right? So that's why this virtual stuff is certainly a, a good thing for the industry. Yeah, 100%. And is there a property type that you found kind of works really well to do this uh, zero impact strategy? Well, generally, the more units you have, the easier it is to reach this threshold. Generally, the more units in the property, the larger the cash flow margin. So a fourplex in Edmonton, let's say, is going to have a much better chance of reaching this threshold than a single family in like a major market or something like that, right? So that would be kind of the approach. But, you know, I like the small markets. Like if you're a new investor, places like the Edmontons, the Bellevilles, Windsor, Sudbury, like all these little small markets, definitely there's a lot of good opportunities there. Yeah, that's great. And uh, 
let's say if someone's stuck in their nine to five and we you kind of touched on a, a little bit here with some of these strategies, but and they're looking for ways to maybe increase their qualifying income without taking on a second job. What are some ways that you look at to help improve them qualifying? So there's a few versions. So your income is going to be the biggest driver, but the second thing is going to be your expenses, right? So maybe you just think twice before involving yourself in certain expenses, right? Things like a car lease, things like taking on, you know, debt or, or things of that nature. I mean, I think the main thing that people run into a big problem with is like, they have this priority to pay off their primary residence as quick as possible. And what they do is they'll put their houses on these accelerated payment plans and things like that. But when you're putting them on these accelerated payment plans, what you're doing is you're making your monthly obligation of payments higher. So the more you're obligated to pay on a monthly basis, the larger the expense that exists in your mortgage application. So you could have a $200,000 mortgage and you could have an $800,000 mortgage. They can impact you the same way, just based on how you set up the payment structure. Yeah. So you want to keep things on the longest, slowest payment track possible and take advantage of prepayment options if you want to pay it down faster, but don't set your payments up to automatically be higher kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Depends on where the investor is and what stage of life, kids, that kind of thing. But I know that maybe if you're a younger investor and more mobile, some of the things that you would be an advocate for would be like house hacking, right? as a starting point to get into investing. Yeah, I think if you're brand new and just be mindful when I'm giving this advice, I'm giving this advice in the framework of I'm trying to optimize for real estate investing. There could be life situations that make you not want to do these things. But if we're just talking about how do I make the most effective path as a real estate investor, as a young person getting into industry, I would say here would be the simple formula. One, get a job which allows you to work remote. That means you can relocate to any market. Therefore, you can house hack and get in with a 5% down in any market available in Canada. So if you get a job where you work remote, that will allow you to go to Edmonton and put 5% down. That will allow you to go to Thunder Bay, Ontario and put 5% down on a $300,000 duplex and things like that. So if your number one commitment is to get into real estate and get into it the most effective way possible, you want the ability to be flexible with your location so you can relocate to those markets. And you wanna start with those types of high leverage plays, buying with 5% down, things like house hacking, things of that nature. Yeah, I like that. And the other thing about working remote is if you have some downtime, you can work on your rental. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so when I was at the multifamily conference, you got up and talked, it was awesome. I really enjoyed listening to you. And you talked about MLI Select. So I'm just wondering maybe if you could just start off by giving us a 10,000 foot view, and then we're gonna dive into some information about that. Yeah. So. CMHC, people often know KM Mortgage and Housing Corporation as the insurer who insures the mortgages when people are putting 5% down. So if you're buying like a regular residential property with less than 20% down, that's called an insured mortgage. You put your down payment and then there's an insurance premium that gets lumped onto your mortgage. And that's why you're allowed to purchase with less than 20% down. What a lot of people don't know is this third-party insurer also insures commercial loans. So when loans are insured by insurer, there's a lot less risk for the bank. There's essentially no risk for the bank because if you default, the insurer will pay back the bank. So they have essentially have no risk in these loans that are insured. So when you get an insured loan, you generally get really good mortgage terms. So one year ago, March, 2022, CMHC introduced a new program called CMHC MLI Select. And it's a program specifically for multi-unit apartment buildings that are five units and larger. And they've introduced some incentives 
to make buildings more energy efficient, to improve the affordable housing stock, as well as improve accessibility in buildings. And if you meet the thresholds of this program, you can get up to a 50 year amortization. So on the residential borrowing side, the longest you can get is 30 years, but on this program, you can get as long as a 50 year amortization. So that helps big time with your cash flow. You can get a 95% loan to value. So crazy loan to value on these apartment buildings. And the interest rates are essentially the lowest interest rates in the industry. So it's the best loan product you can possibly get really when it comes to cost and the ability to cash flow a building. And this is one of the big reasons why commercial real estate is really starting to get a lot more popularity. And then, so how are people are initially, so you can transfer over, it's a point system, right? And then you have to qualify based on those criteria as we talked about. But initially when that investor is looking at, say that maybe older apartment building that needs work, how are they acquiring the funds to purchase it up front? Well, I mean, people approach different ways. Some people have the funds to buy these apartment buildings, right? Some people raise the funds. So you can do like a GPLP structure where you're the managing partner. Maybe you put some money in the deal or maybe you put no money in the deal. And then you raise the capital for the project from a group of limited partners who have passive involvement in the deal and maintain an equity stake in the property. But there's all kinds of ways. The thing I love about commercial real estate investing is they allow for all these different ownership structures. So if you want to uniquely or creatively structure your deal, it's allowed with the major banks. You're allowed to go raise a million dollars for your down payment and renovation funds. But also some of the loan products that exist out there will fund things like renovation. So on the most recent deal we bought two weeks ago, we got a renovation loan for 400000 on this building. So that's a big chunk of money that maybe people are thinking I have to raise or I have to come up with that you might just be able to get from a lender specifically. Okay, so let's say I got my eye on a rundown or older apartment building that needs, you know, the upgrades, the windows, the boiler, all that stuff. If I have my plan in place and brought that to CMHC, could I go straight into an MLI select product or do I have to wait? It would have to qualify. So the hypothetical building you just described theoretically wouldn't qualify because there's a few different ways to qualify. One is if you rent a certain percentage of your building, let's say 40% of your building at the 30th percentile rent range. So there's PDFs and documents online that even I can provide you. So if you're a listener to this podcast right now and you just want more details, you can reach out to me. I can literally just provide you all the paperwork and it'll be really straightforward, but it will show you a grid of every single city in Canada and it will tell you what the affordable housing rental rate would be for a one bedroom, two bedroom, bachelor and three bedroom. So you know what you need to rent it out for to hit the affordability guidelines if you're choosing to go that route, okay? The next route is getting access to the MLI Select Loans through their energy efficiency program. So in order to meet that energy efficiency protocol, it starts with what was the efficiency of the building when I bought it? They refer to that as the baseline. And then you have to prove that you improved the efficiency from that baseline anywhere from like 20, 30 or 40% improvement for different loan terms. So if you're buying a distressed building, you can't improve the baseline when you don't even own it yet, right? So you typically are buying those buildings with what is called a repositioning loan. So that allows you to get in the building and it gives you like an 18 to 24 month window to reposition the building you know, evict tenants, renovate units, improve the efficiency and things like that. So if you're somebody who's looking to buy an apartment building and your plan is to reposition the building and then refinance it with this CMHC MLI select and get these really good loan terms, 
the first person I recommend talking to is an energy consultant. So you understand which renovations in the building are going to yield you those biggest returns from the energy efficiency baseline. Because you may think that, oh, well, I'm improving the efficiency of this and this, but maybe all you really had to do was to put an HRV system in the attic and that could have met the efficiency that you otherwise would have had to spend like $20,000 in another you know, function of the building, right? So you just kind of know what renovations is. And the other thing too, is that you want to target the shittier buildings because if you're looking at a building where the windows are already done, it's like, okay, you can't improve that, right? Because the baseline is now higher, right? Yeah. So it's just really learning what renovations trigger the biggest efficiency. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so if the building already has some of those upgrades, well, then you're not going to get the lift when you buy them, which actually makes for a great strategy, you know, to basically understand that part. And I like your advice about talking to an energy consultant. And obviously probably in doing the research online as well, right? The thing with commercial lending is like, you know, a lot of people, you know, they work with their bank or they work with a mortgage agent, but not a lot of people are actually doing this type of stuff, right? So you need to work with somebody who knows how this actually goes down because there's always gray area in everything. Okay. These energy efficiency consultations they do, like you have to take them with a grain of salt because they're not even measuring the efficiency of the entire building. They're taking a sample size. So there's just things where if the sample size is really efficient, but the other half of the building is really inefficient, well, that sample size isn't an accurate representation of the energy efficiency of the building, right? So there's details in this where if you're working with someone like me who's done this, who's repositioning a building right now for this, I can kind of show you the way. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And then, so you said five units are larger. So obviously the fourplex is out. You can't do this on a fourplex. No. And then basically you could go with big of a building as you can find. And as long as you have the financing and can give it enough of a lift. Yeah, so the funny thing with commercial financing, which is very opposite from residential, is the larger the deal, the better. So on the residential lending side, if you're buying a house and it's $3 million or $4 million, really big, you know, luxury home, a lot of banks say, you know what, we're not going to do 80% loan to value past a million and a half in this city or past 2 million. So the loan to value ends up getting a lot smaller on big luxury purchases. On the apartment building side, there's a lot of complexity when it comes to underwriting these loans. So these banks don't really want to be underwriting loans under a million dollars. If the deal is $10 million, you're going to have a lot more commercial banks who are interested in looking at that deal and interested in funding that deal. So on the commercial side, the larger the asset, the more interest in funding the project there will be. Yeah, that makes sense. And then part of the MLI select was accessibility. So what kind of stuff would someone do to help with that? Is it putting in the ramps, maybe an elevator, that kind of thing? So when it comes to accessibility, there's like a certification from a third party. I can't think of the name right now, but there's a third party institute who does the certification so you can get directly in contact with them. But for most people you speak with, what you'll learn when it comes to accessibility, see accessibility, it sounds logical to the average person, but the amount of restructuring you would actually have to do in these buildings, most people kind of advise that the only way to really hit that accessibility is if you're building it brand new from scratch to the guidelines. If you're buying an existing building, that's gonna be a really hard metric to hit. The good news, is you can hit 100 points and get the best possible loan terms just by focusing on the energy efficiency. So it's okay if you're not playing in that bucket, you can mix and match a little bit, but the accessibility is probably not something you're gonna be utilizing unless you are building new construction. Yeah, that makes sense. And then are there grants also provided for the energy efficiency program? Like I know in the residential side, there are, you can get Alberta, maybe I think it may be federal, but you can get up to $40,000 at 0% 
interest, you know, to do updates on your home? I'm sure there's programs that exist at the municipal level, right? Might depend on where you're investing and things like that. It could be some of these uh, utility providers who are giving incentives and things like that as well. So I would just do research in your local region, network with some other investors, maybe network with the investors who are maybe a bit more frugal than you because they're usually the ones who are finding the deals and things like that. I don't know of any specific programs related to that, but you know there are things like that out there. Yeah, for sure. Because you're in Ontario, they recently changed some of the rules and I just haven't dove into the details, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Because I think you're allowed up, is it up to four doors on a property? Is that what they've done? Is Can you maybe just give us a high level? Yeah, so I have to give some credit to the governments, some rare credit to give <laughs> in the GTA, because they've actually done a lot of work in the last couple of years towards rezoning and allowing investors to take single families, convert them to duplex or have fourplexes in neighborhoods where they otherwise were never allowed to have fourplex under the zoning and things like that. So Toronto just passed a bylaw where you can go up to four or five units on every single lot, essentially in the city, every single residential lot, right? As long as you meet building code, right? There's still going to be building code, square footage requirements, ceiling height requirements, fire code requirements, all that kind of stuff, right? But the zoning has changed. So it allows up to four or five units in Hamilton, where I'm from, They've almost rezoned the entire city to allow four units on every single property. So they're opening the door for people to be able to do a lot more conversion projects. Part of it is we need a lot more housing. The other part of it that's not really being publicly talked about is that people need the income support. It's getting so expensive now that you almost need a basement unit in your property to keep up because your mortgage payment went up $1,000 or things like that, right? So I would like to see them go even further and really incentivize the building of new units more than they currently are, right? Because if someone's spending $120,000 to create a unit that otherwise was not there, why can't they get a 10 grand, 15 grand, 20 grand kickback of some kind? Maybe you could even allocate that kickback towards renting the basement unit out at an affordable rate for a period of time. Like there's a lot of win-win situations that could arise with this, but definitely got to give some credit to the governments because there's been a lot of rezoning across the GTA. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if Alberta follows suit. I think we probably will. You know, there's definitely some changes coming, but it is neat to see them make those big changes. Uh, have you seen that sort of lift then? Like are contractors chasing this already and are investors starting to convert and that kind of thing? Well, you know, those types of projects were wildly popular where I am already. And a lot of people were doing them, whether they were doing them legally or illegally, like people were converting all these houses, right? So I think now what you're seeing is you're just seeing a lot more people take their properties through the legal conversion process versus just renovating them and not actually registering with the city and things like that. The contractors are guns a blazing out every single week. There's a new garden suite or ADU tour or SDU tour where they're really promoting building units and garages and putting separate detached dwellings on the properties. So that's kind of a strategy where I think it's a little bit of a wait and see. A lot of people like the idea of, of plopping a detached dwelling in a backyard or something like that. But some of these contractors are charging three, four hundred thousand dollars to do so. So the rental return is just not quite there right now. But as that building changes, as you get more of those prefabbed ADUs and things like that, and the prices come down, I think the popularity is going to start to rise then. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting to think that the infrastructure that's currently in place, like there's got to be a limit, like the sewer lines, the electrical lines coming into some of these areas are not going to be sized for these many units. So I'm, obviously that they're going to be 
cognizant of that as well. Like, you know, like there's going to be some bottlenecks along the way. Transformers will have to be changed, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all experienced challenges with our own properties already before they've really put this whole thing on steroids with, you know, giving the availability of all these dwellings and things like that. And then, you know, there's going to be a lot of neighbors who are not happy. There's so many cars on the street. That was the big challenge in Hamilton where I am is that nobody could meet the parking criteria in order to convert. And it's kind of like one of these unknown things where it's kind of like, that's the exception everybody gets. So they'll say, okay, one minor variance. Okay. You don't meet the parking guidelines, but you meet everything else. We'll grant you the status. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see how it all turns out. I think overall it's a good thing. Will there be some extra problems created along the way? Probably. And, you know, we'll have to resolve those when they come up. So have they kind of just put parking to the side then? Are they actually still looking at parking? If you're going to put four units on an existing lot, are they concerned about the parking part of it? Generally, right. But it could be you can not meet the guidelines, but get a variance kind of get a, thing. Get a variance. Which means like, hey, you got a mulligan, you're you know what, everything else is close enough, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And for even in Calgary, I know with the garden suites, they've always been a bit cost prohibitive. Like they're not cheap to put up. And then it's more of a lifestyle thing if you want your mother-in-law or family member or close friend or something but to build them and think that you're going to get the roi when you sell just hasn't been there it's actually more strategic to buy one that's already been built as an investor than to go and build one yourself right buy one yeah. in the used market and that's where like they're trying to essentially pitch the sweet spot is you already have a structure there like a garage or something like that so then maybe that reduces the cost a little bit versus like building from scratch kind of thing. But it's interesting because these ADUs, like they're better than the basement units. They're not bad. Like they're not a bad living accommodation. So from a renter's perspective and things like that, I definitely see the value. You're above ground, all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, we'll see. It's just something where I expect the cost to come down considerably. Can you just define ADU? Like additional dwelling unit, right? So okay, it could, yeah. Yeah, so it could be attached to the house. So like people do garage conversions or they do what they call garden suites, which would be just, you know, you're plopping a house in the backyard type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's usually what we call them here is the uh, garden suite type thing. Yeah, mother-in-law suite, another kind of slang name. I kind of want to circle back to like some new investor type questions. So if you have a new investor kind of approach you and they're just kind of wanting to get started, is this something like, you know, there you have land transfer tax, that kind of thing. And, and if you don't incorporate, you, know, you put in your personal name and then, you know, you go to corporate after you're going to get taxed on it. Is that right? So yeah, you should consult an accountant for that. But generally, yes, there might be some ways where you can defer that taxation to some period in the future. But generally, yeah. Yeah, because in Alberta, we can like you can buy properties and then you, there's no land transfer tax. So you can actually you know, incorporate afterwards, right? So usually, I mean, it's kind of strategic to wait to see if real estate investing is even for you before you go out and incorporate that kind of thing. So what kind of advice, I guess it obviously depends on where you are and what your strategy is and that kind of thing. But I guess house hacking is probably the very first thing that would be smart to do, right? Just move into a place and put a suite in the basement or something. Yeah, I think it all comes down to starting with what do I qualify for? And within that qualification range, what is the best strategy that exists? In my market, if your maximum qualification price is 600000 I don't recommend investing in Hamilton, where I am. I recommend going to a different market where it's less expensive and you can get a cash flowing multi-unit, right? So it all starts with what do you qualify for and then what investment types are available within that range. And then from there, you have to just decide how much complexity am I willing to take on, right? Doing a burst strategy and then Airbnb being the property after and getting huge cash flow is going to be a better strategy than buying turnkey 
but turnkey is still good. And are you ever going to do that other more complex strategy? Right. So it really just comes down to what options are available within your qualification range. And then what do you feel like taking on? How big of a project do you feel like taking on kind of thing? Yeah, that makes sense. So you're a mortgage broker, but you can be a broker in other provinces, right? What provinces are you licensed in? So we're licensed right now, like officially licensed Ontario, Alberta. And we do deals in any province because not every bank needs you to be licensed in their province, right? If the bank operates in all these provinces, it's not a big deal kind of thing. But we can do deals anywhere in Canada. We do a lot of deals out east, Quebec, different provinces. But we got our brokerage license in Alberta after Ontario just because we're following the trends. And there's just so many investors going to Alberta. We really support what's going on in Alberta. And we really think there's a lot of upside in Alberta personally as well. I'll probably be, if I'm investing my next deal in Canada, it will likely be in Alberta. So that was just kind of the natural progression. Yeah, for sure. And then you did talk about the States a little bit. So you're investing in the States as well right now. Yeah. So, you know, it's really a leisure play. What I'm doing right now is first I bought a condo in Naples, Florida. I fell in love with Naples, Florida. It's like my favorite city in the world. It's like so good down there. So clean. The people are so nice. Like just a great proper. Oh, it's I've only been there, I think, once in my life and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a proper place. You know, my brother and I lived there for a few months during the pandemic uh, when things were locked down up here. So got a good taste of the lifestyle. And then we just looked around we're like, okay, hey, what investment plays work in this market? It's kind of a luxury market. And, and the only kind of strategy that we found that worked well was knocking down and doing infills where what we're doing right now is we're building three, four bed, four bath houses with pools that are all walking distance to the beach. And the numbers right now, we'll see, you know, it's like an 18 month project. So we'll see what the values look like at the end of the project versus what the comps look like today in the market. But what we're doing is essentially we're burring all three. So we're going to get our money back on all three. And then we're running all three on Airbnb. And it's a really interesting case study because one of those properties might cost the same amount and rent for the same amount as an apartment building, 20 unit apartment building here. Really? So it's like, you know, because you can run these at like $20,000 a month on Airbnb and they are valued around like 1.75, 1.85 USD. So, you know, that's over 2 million Canadian, right? So it's just an interesting thing. What's harder to manage? This is probably easier to manage. And there's a lifestyle benefit associated with it too. You know, one day, you know, probably retiring in those houses, you know, taking the family up here and there for a week or what have you. We love having condos there, but sometimes you just want a bit more space. So we just kind of found a nice hybrid of a lifestyle investment that still kind of works on paper with fundamentals. That's amazing. Any concerns that maybe the city would one day say, oh, we're going to change our bylaws for short-term rentals, that kind of thing? Not specifically, and I'll explain to you why, and this is good for the listeners who are considering investing into a project where they plan to run it on Airbnb. It's always risky if your only viability towards cash flow is reliant on short-term rental. Because you mentioned the regulation can change. Regulation risk is probably just the biggest risk in real estate investing. Like nothing would shock me. If the government came and took my property tomorrow, that would not shock me, right? <laughs> so. The reality is, is like regulation is always going to be the biggest risk. But if you are going to chase Airbnb style investments, what we recommend doing or what I would recommend people to do is go somewhere where there's already been regulation administered. If the city has never received any regulation, then you do not know what may happen in the future. Whereas in Naples, Florida, they have really serious regulation. And this is the one pocket that has unlimited short term rental allowance. So that's why this area works for us, where there's a lot of other areas that 
I personally would prefer to invest in that I think there's bigger price upside, but they don't allow short-term rental. So I'm not going in those pockets. That makes sense too. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And we weren't even going to go down this road, but what kind of percent are you going to be having it for management fees of those short-term rentals? Well, we're not sure how we're going to run it yet. We're not sure if we're going to self-manage or we're going to hire a company down there. So we'll see. I think, you know, you can expect anywhere 15 to 20% on an Airbnb management company, right? Yep. But where we're at now as a business is that, you know, we have this mortgage company. We're putting through over a thousand mortgage files every single year. There's a lot happening here. We have a lot of staff. Our staff love real estate investing. It's kind of largely probably eventually going to move where we bring people in-house for this stuff on the investment company side. So why wouldn't I have a staff who helps with the real estate projects and also can run Airbnb very well? Like there's a lot of people who are skilled at Airbnb right now because Airbnb arbitrage has become so big in North America in the last few years. So if you can find a way to bring somebody in your team in-house who can run it, that's going to be really valuable to avoid paying 15% when the revenues could be 200000 a year and, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. You've definitely come a long ways. And then, so when you first left, you went and got your MBA and you decided to change. Were there times when you questioned, man, am I made, did I make the right decision? Should I have done this? But did you have those moments? Well, I would say probably like in my first like four months of being a mortgage agent, I was like, oh, I should have been a realtor. This is like, <laughs> no one's referred me any deals. Like, you know, like it would have been easier being a realtor or something, right? So I think at the end of the day, when I came in, my expectations were I was just going to blow the roof off and everything was going to happen right away. And it was going to be amazing. And really kind of did go that way. Like it went really well. My first year I did 72 files. So that's like quite a bit of volume. And but it almost all happened in the second six months of the year. The first six months of the year, it was like nothing really happened. And then in the last six months, it was like, oh, the ball is rolling here. Cause like at the end of the day, when it comes to real estate, it's a sales cycle. Our average client probably converts about four or five months after they come in to come to us as a lead, let's say, right? So if you're new to these types of professions, just understand. Yeah, I'm sure, Corey, you have clients where you met them two years ago, and now they're just finally buying an investment property, right? Everyone's on a different timeline. Everyone has different priorities. And, you know, as long as you just put in the work, you know, eventually everything will catch up. Yeah, definitely. Okay, man, we're getting close to the end of the show. Just a few personal questions. What's a favorite book or movie? I'll start with favorite movie. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty boring. I love Remember the Titans. I'm a big sports guy. So for me, like that movie is just a classic. And then when it comes to books and things like that, I read like quite a bit of books. You know, there are a lot of books have been very impactful. I really like one from another real estate investor. It's called Money People Deal by Stefan Arneo. So he was a real estate investor in Winnipeg who um, passed away a few years ago. And I had the opportunity to actually meet him in Winnipeg and like spend a couple of days with him. And this guy was like just absolutely brilliant. And if you're new to real estate investing, money people deal, that is the best real estate investing book. I think it breaks down joint venture structures and just kind of the basic fundamentals that are involved in every single real estate deal. And if you want to creatively put together a partnership, this book will provide you so many ideas on how to pull different levers to make partnerships happen. That's awesome tip, man. And then where's somewhere you'd like to travel that you haven't been? So what's on the bucket list somewhere to go? 100%. I just want to go Asia, Thailand, China, Philippines, Vietnam. I want to do like a crazy Asia trip. That's definitely on the bucket list. Yeah, I like culture shock. I just like to go a place where I'm just like standing out and I'm the weird person. That's <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? 
Best way to get in touch with me is definitely on Instagram at Jacob Perez 10. I'm very active on Instagram. If you send me a DM, we can get a call scheduled right away. So please reach out. I love talking to different investors at all different levels, whether it's your first deal, we can help you. We've helped a lot of people go from, like we said, one to 10 properties, or if you're ready to level up, we could kind of really simplify the process for you. So Instagram's the best place to find me at Jacob Perez 10. Hey man, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. All the best. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.